0: All right. Good morning, guys. Uh, My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here. And uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. Glad you're here. We are working our way uh, through Acts, which is um, the story of the early church. And we're unpacking really its meaning for us today. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. We have our um, our Black Bibles distributed throughout the room. Go ahead and grab one of those. And if you're using one of our Bibles, you're going to be going over to page 913. We're, again, looking at a, a fairly lengthy passage this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at the rest of the chapter. And so instead of reading it all at once, and then going back, we're, we're going to continue. You're going to read sections of it and unpack it as we move through. Okay? And, um, and so you want to keep your Bibles uh, nearby. Now, for context... Uh, just to remind you of where we are in the story. Jesus was already crucified. He, he rose again on the third day. He appeared to his immediate disciples and then to the outer circle of disciples and, and up to 500 at one time. Um, and, uh, and then he, he met with the leaders and, and said, look, I've got, I've got a job for you, right? I'm, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving you a job. Uh, I'm giving you a commission, and that commission is to be on mission for me, right? I want you to be disciples who make disciples. That's the heart of the call. Be, be people who go deep in my love and experience it and allow it to change you, and then share that love with others so that they also can be set free, right? He left uh, we find that at the beginning of book of Acts, and, and he sends his spirit in a unique way. His spirit was always present, but now it's a unique um, indwelling. So when someone believes in Jesus in, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells. And that's what we saw happening uh, at the book of Acts, and he gave them supernatural gifts. Um, that weren't there for their pleasure or their power. They were there to advance the mission, right? They had been entrusted a mission to, to, to go deep in the love of God and to share that love with others. And the Spirit equipped that. And we see, as we read through Acts, a huge response, right? In the beginning, they started with about 120 in the broader group. And by this point in the story, there's over 10,000 believers in Jerusalem. And so there's been a huge response, now, from the outside, if you were an unbeliever from the outside looking at this community, they would have been a community that, that were marked by joy, by confident, humble boldness, by, by mutual sacrifice. I mean, that's what the church was known for. Not, not a bad thing to be known for, right? Um, so at this point in time, man, when, when people thought of the way, that's what they were called at this point, the name Christians hadn't even been invented yet. They were part of the way and followers of Christ. That's, that's what they thought of, man. They just saw this vibrant community of people that were joyful and sacrificial and, and, and had this weird, humble boldness about them. Now, inside um, the experience of the early church, they were devoted to worshiping together and praying together and, and doing life together, right? Deep community, knowing and being known, um, and... Um, they were devoted to, to learning more about how the Word of God informed um, their lives, where, where the intersection was between God's Word and the reality of what they were facing, and, uh, and then they were devoted to sharing their faith. So one of the most remarkable aspects of the early church was the clear demonstration of courage. When we read through a passage like we, we see today, um, you're going to see this is, this is pretty intense, right? They're going to be facing persecution, and as they face persecution, we see a boldness, right? Intimidation public shaming, physical abuse, even the threat of death, right? These are, this is the, the world in which they are now moving. And uh, in our passage today, we're going to see um, Luke, the author of, of Acts, pushing a number of, of themes forward as he continues to unpack the narrative, right? Uh, the use and abuse of power, the frailty of the kingdom of man in the face of the kingdom of God, the incredible power and invitation of the gospel, but the thing that stood out to me more than anything as I read this passage was the incredible courage of the leaders. Um, there's an old saying, uh, if, you, if, you strike, if you smite the shepherd, you scatter the sheep. Um, and, and, and that's exactly what the leaders, the religious leaders of that day tried to do, right? They, they crucified Jesus. That was their attempt to smite the shepherd so that all the people that were following him would, would scatter right? The problem was it didn't work, um, right? Because in smiting the shepherd, they didn't get rid of him. Um, he rose from the dead. And, uh, and so as, as he continued to lead, um, they are now trying that same technique on the apostles, right? If we can, if we can smite the leaders, if we, can, if, we can, if we can intimidate them, if we can hinder them, if we can harm them, if we can maybe even kill them, then um, their followers will scatter. Right, they tried it with Jesus; it didn't work. And uh, the reality is, they're getting really dangerously desperate at this point because they're coming to the end of their uh, bag of tricks. <laughs> All the things they've tried in the past that work just don't seem to be working here. So, so let's take a look at the text. I want to unpack the stories we move through it, and at the end, I'm going to make some observations um, specifically about courage and and how that relates to us. So, starting at verses 12 through 16. Um let's pick up there. Verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, remember, that's the portion of the temple that was devoted to public speech, right? And so these guys would come to Solomon's portico, which was the gathering place, the religious gathering place of the day, and that's where there was open air preaching. Like, in a sense, you could have open debate and things like that. They were going there every day and talking about Jesus. Verse 13. None of the rest dared join them. Now, that is not defined who are the rest here. Uh, I think it's more than likely that the leaders, the apostles, were going to um, the portico to preach every day, uh, but they weren't bringing the entire church. Um, And part of that was because of the threat that was already made clear. But the people held them in high esteem. Verse 14, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. All right, pause there for a minute. So we're going to see there's a lot of crazy stuff in the book of Acts right? The Spirit of God is, is very active, not that he isn't always, but in this case, in a very public, um, demonstrative way, he is manifesting his power uh, to basically validate the message, right? It's, it's the Spirit basically saying, listen to these people, watch their Watch what I'm doing through them, now listen to what they have to say. And it is a radical demonstration of power. It's the kind of power that can't be explained apart from the presence of and the blessing of God, right? These guys are, are, are uh, healing people. And, and, and um, uh, there's an interesting comparison in this passage as we move forward. When we compare the power demonstrated through the apostles to the, to the blustering, posturing power of the Sanhedrin, um, it's an ironic comparison because the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of that day, their, their power was used to keep things in line. Their power was was all about protecting their position of power and, and their experience of privilege. So they exercised power to make sure they weren't threatened, to make sure that the system was not um, knocked off balance. They liked where they were in the power structure, and they intended to keep it there, right? And they reflect... Um, really the, the power of man's kingdom. And we think about it, how do we measure power today? Right? In man's kingdom, we tend to measure power by what we can destroy. right? The most powerful nations today are not those that are the greatest life givers, the greatest blessing to the rest of the earth. The greatest nations today are those who pose the greatest threat. The Often the, the ones that we think of as the most powerful are the ones who have the greatest arsenal of destructive weapons, right? The most powerful nations are those with the greatest power to destroy. See, in man's kingdom, we use power to advance ourselves and to threaten, hurt, and destroy others in order to protect our experience, our position, our wealth, our privilege. Peter, in this passage, man, he walks along, and he exercises a totally different kind of power, right? It's the power that gives life. It's not the power of self protection. It's not the power of self promotion. It's not the power of, of keeping things in line and in order. If anything, it's a power that creates a beautiful chaos. It's a power that heals the sick. It's a power that, that sets right what is broken. And it's exercised without exertion, no stress. No big pompous displays, no, no working himself. into. I mean, he's just walking along, right? And his shadow has more power than the leaders in all of their puffed up posturing. Peter was effortless, effortlessly and, 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 and it seems almost carelessly working in a power that, that the leaders, the religious leaders, dreamed they could have. Dreamed, wished they could have. And in fact, it makes them jealous and afraid. Take a look at verses 17 and 18. 17 and 18. But the high priest rose up, the leader of the Sanhedrin, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, they were the ruling power at the time, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. All right, they see a power at work they don't understand. And, um, and under other circumstances, I, I think it's probably a power that would have intrigued them, would have probably interested them, maybe even fascinated them, right? Under other circumstances, I mean, this is the kind of thing i would be like, really? I got to see this work, right? I got to see how this, how this is happening. But this power is a threat to their authority. So they start out <laughs> not curious, but defensive. They are jealous and afraid. So what do they do? They do the only thing their power equips them to do, right? They exercise a power to hurt. They reach out and and they arrest them. Again, this already happened in chapter three. Once again, they arrest them, right? They arrest them at the end of the day when the Sanhedrin isn't meeting. They stick them in prison overnight, which is a a, it's coming like, okay, we've seen this before sort of a deal. This is their attempt to to intimidate, right? And uh, to bring them in line but it's not going to work. Take a look at verses 19 through 21. Um, During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. It kind of seems like God's playing games with them here, don't you think? I mean, I love this right? It's like, it's like these guys, they, they're like, okay, man, these guys are becoming threatening again. They're out there talking again. They obviously didn't work the first time, so let's try it again. They arrest them. They stick them in the cooler overnight, right? A, a tool of intimidation. <laughs> it makes them feel strong to make other people feel weak. It makes them feel like they have real authority to exercise their power at the expense of those who threaten their authority, Their goal is to leave them in that prison overnight so that they can be reminded of how powerless they are, right? That's the whole goal. Let them sit there overnight. So while they're sitting there, they'll think about, man, I am physically limited. I can't see my family. I can't see my friends. These guys have the power to do this to me. They have the power to, to restrict me. They have the power to hurt me. They have the power even to kill me. And, um, and then while they're sitting there, while they're locked in their prison, uh, effortlessly, God demonstrates how little power they actually have, right? like <laughs> in the middle of the night. Door pops open. All right, you guys, out. Let's go. It's time to go. Come on. Out, out, out. Come on. No sleep. Get, get, right? The guards are right there. They don't even notice, right? Again, talk about the power of God. They don't even notice, right? And, and the Lord's like, okay, I got a job for you. Remember that job I gave you before to be my witness? Go do it, right? Keep on going, man. All right, Um, imagine this was you. Um, Would you be excited or afraid to go back to the temple and keep preaching? Probably a little of both, right? I mean, this is God who just let you out of prison and told you to keep doing it. But this is also the Sanhedrin who who have tremendous amount of earthly power, tremendous amount of earthly authority. They can do what they want. So I'm sure that as they move forward, there was both excitement and fear. But here's the thing. When they lock you up and God sets you free, who are you more afraid of? You know what I'm saying? Like in that moment, I think the fear of God trumps the fear of man, right? In that moment, you're like, okay, God, you're demonstrating a power that is like inexplainable. This is real thing. Uh, and, so, um, and so they do. And uh, take a look at uh, how this keep, continues going, the end of verse 21 here. Now, when the high priest came and those that were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. All right, pause for a minute. Remember in chapter 3, they did the same thing. This is their stick, right? What they do is they stick you in the cooler overnight. They let you have a rough night. Um, they make sure you're not comfortable. You don't have a good, good, good night's nice sleep. Then they drag you out in front of them, and they're dressed in all of their best they're arrayed in all of their power. They're at their most intimidating, right? They've had a good night's rest. They had a good breakfast. They put on all their fancy, bright clothing, and they all come together, and they're all standing there impressed with one another, and they're sure this time it's going to be intimidating, right? I love this. Verse 22, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. All right. Weird moment of confusion. Awkward moment of of deflation, right? Verse uh, 24, Now when the captain in the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, right in the middle of all that chaos, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. All right, catch the irony at the end of this passage, right? You know they are, like, more than mildly put out at this moment, right? More than just slightly annoyed, right? These guys have exercised their power, and their power has been basically thrown back in their face, right? They went to go get them out of prison, and the guards are still standing guard. They open the doors, and they're not there, right? They're ready. They're in their pomp, their circumstance, their great display of power. They're ready to intimidate and threaten, and they're not even there. And then they hear, oh yeah, they're back at Solomon's Portico, They're at the spot we arrested them yesterday, preaching again. So this time, all of them, man, all of them. Like I can just see them parading through the streets, marching along, frustrated, fuming. They get there, and what do they do? They take them, but not by force, because they were afraid that the people would stone them. See, these guys hold the highest seats of authority in Israel. They have power and they have authority to use it. And they want everyone to acknowledge and honor that power. And they want them to think it's real authority, right? They want to believe it's real authority. But when it comes down to it, the people pull back the curtain and reveal the truth. These guys are only pretenders. They don't have real authority. They only have authority that a structure empowers them with, right? Remember, remember the distinction I made two weeks ago. Power is the ability to do what you want when you want right? Power is the ability to do what you want, when you want. Authority is the permission to do it. And when you have authority, you can do what you want, when you want. And and, and when you're in authority, it means you're over others, and you get to tell them when they can do what they want and when they want. The higher you are on the, on the ladder of authority, um, the greater uh, your ability to limit other people's freedom. They were at the top of the ladder. They thought they were, And yet, when they showed up in this moment, they were struck with the reality that they had no authority. You know why? Because in that moment, the people stopped giving it to them. The people stopped playing the game, the cultural game that said, these are the rules by which we play, this is how you get ahead, this is how we recognize authority. And in that moment, there was something happening that was outside of their control that threatened the structure that made them secure. And as a result, they had to show up and publicly basically ask the apostles, will you please come with us? Will, will you? Come on, please. Right? I wonder if they made him wait. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'll be with you in a minute. I got a few things more to say. Right? I'm preaching about Jesus here. I got, I got a few more points. Well, come on, come on, come on. Uh, just, just a sec. Right? And they're powerless. And in that moment, for these guys, that's like the most bitter pill they could swallow guys that are drunk on their power, people that are convinced with their authority to be confronted with the reality that they have neither if it's not given to them, right? And so in the face of their blustering, these guys stand there and do what they um, ask them not to do. They continue to give witness. Verses 27 through 32. Uh, the, the text continues. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them. And I, I think that more than likely the tenor of the meeting at this point is quite different. I like to picture them being slightly disheveled, their, their fancy hats a bit askew, um, their, their f- cheeks red you know, their hearts beating. They just had to walk all the way down to Solomon's portico to ask these guys to come back after they had him in prison and it couldn't keep them. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and then he says, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Do you hear the, the tension and the fear in his voice? to those who obey him, see, Peter drives home, the same point he made in chapter three, when we looked at the first time they were arrested. God is the one with real authority, not you, right? You, you killed Jesus. God raised him from the dead. And now you want us to obey you, right? You did your best, and you struck out, right? You exercised your greatest authority, which is to remove life. And God restored it. And you want us now to obey you. You now want us to come in line with you. You want us to be intimidated by you. You want us to follow you. Seriously? (laughs) I love that question. Who should we obey? God or man? I mean, really? Obviously, we can't see the apostles' faces. as I read this text, there's a tone of calmness here, of patience. Almost like, okay, I told you this before, but I'm going to gently say it again. You killed Jesus. God raised him from the dead. We're following God. And maybe you should too. Because when Jesus died, he he died to forgive sins, right? God sovereignly worked through your rebellion. You nailed him to a tree because you hated him and he threatened your power structures and he threatened your position of privilege and he threatened your position of comfort. You killed him. You tried to get rid of him. God worked through your rebellion to bring about forgiveness because when he died, he was our substitute. God used your rebellion to actually pay the price of all of our rebellion. He died as our substitute in our place. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die. And when he rose again, he rose again that we could be forgiven. And Peter, once again, instead of bringing condemnation down on the leaders, instead of condemning them and yelling at them or, or fighting them, he just offers them once again the invitation. Jesus rose again. You can be forgiven. Yes, what you did was wrong. Yes, what you did was was guilty. You are, you are um, guilty of treason against the most high God. But there's forgiveness because God worked in your rebellion to bring forgiveness for all of our rebellion. Because he died, you can be forgiven too. So I love that image of him, like a patient adult explaining it, right? You did this, you're responsible, God has used it. And that patient calmness in the face of their anger and in the face of their jealousy, in the face of their bitterness, in the face of their fear, must have been like salt in the wound. This isn't how people normally stand in front of the Sanhedrin. Normally, by the time they get to this point, they're beat up, they're tired, they're scared, they're groveling a little bit, or maybe they're posturing. Maybe they're puffing up and getting angry and getting loud and, you know, like either in your face or duck and run into the corner. And these guys are just calmly standing and instructing, come to Jesus. That must have been infuriating. They knew what to do with people that groveled. And they knew, to do, knew what to do with people who puffed themselves up and fought. I don't think they had any idea what to do with these guys, right? The, these guys who were uneducated, right? They were just fishermen. They hadn't worked their way up through the social ranks. These weren't guys that should have any right to stand before the Sanhedrin and, and teach them, let alone have confidence and, and be calm in front of them. These guys should be afraid. These guys should be running. These guys should be listening. And yet they're quietly instructing. And I think that that infuriated them even more. So we see their reaction in verse 33. Sadly, but not surprisingly, they don't respond to the invitation for forgiveness with humility and gratitude. Uh, Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Their response is fearful anger, right? The leaders are at their wits' ends. They've tried everything, and yet these um, uneducated idiots, that's their language from chapter 3, these, these agramatos idiotas, these uneducated idiots are standing in front of them, audaciously bold and humble, not groveling, not posturing, not yelling, not hiding. It must have been completely maddening and confusing, disorienting, And so what do they do? They do what their power equips them to do. They respond with rage and with a desire to destroy, right? They want to just kill them. It's the most powerful thing they know to do. In a face of something they simply cannot understand, their response is, we will exercise the greatest power we have. We will remove your life. We will kill you. Surely our authority will once again be solidified if we can just kill you. Surely our position will once again be comfortable if we just could kill you. If we could just destroy the threat to our comfort, to our position, to our privilege, if we could just silence your voice, then we would be okay. That must have been an incredibly horrible morning for these guys everything they did to exercise their power, everything they've done in the past that solidified their power, made people bow to their authority, was completely powerless. And as a result, they're exposed in their weakness, a feeling they're not used to and a feeling they abhor. They think, if we could just kill these guys, surely we would feel secure again. Surely we would feel powerful again. And so that's the direction they would have gone, but God raises up a preserving voice from within the Sanhedrin. Take a look at the next section, verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside, that's the apostles, for a little while. And he said to them, that is the rest of the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodias rose up, claiming to be somebody, But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. The word there is scourge. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the, for the name of name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So our respected teacher, Gamaliel, uh, raises his voice. These guys are all worked up. They are in a lather. They are ready to kill these guys. And Gamaliel's like, you guys cool it, cool it. See what Gamaliel's doing. I don't think he's actually um, saying we should believe in Jesus. I think what he's saying is, do you guys remember the crowds when we, when we went and met the apostles at Solomon's Portico? They were ready to stone us. <laughs> you kill these guys, we're in danger. Let's be cool-headed here, right? Let's back off a little bit, right? We've seen this happen before, right? Theudius was a guy that, that rose up. A bunch of people followed him. When he died, they all scattered. Just had to give it time, right? And, 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 and this other guy, um, Judas the Galilean, right? Um, he rose up. And, uh, and then when he was killed, it just took a little while. Their, their followers scattered. Let's just, they both failed, right? Their, their followers eventually stopped following. So, so just cool it and let's let this thing take its course, right? I don't think he was saying Jesus is the Christ. We need to believe in him. We better listen. I think what he was saying was more like, like okay, you guys, um, he, was, he was gently and persuasively um, speaking both to their pride and their self-interest, Right? Okay, you guys have the authority, but let's not ex- exercise it. You know, she's so stroking their pride a little bit. And then speaking to their self-preservation, let's just let this thing fail on its own. We don't need to inflame it. Uh, as a result, um, the leaders brought them back in, and, uh, and this time not content to simply command them, intimidate them, this time they, they beat them, right? They upped the ante. Every time somebody's power seems to be powerless, we, they tend to up the ante right they They get louder, they get angrier, they get more violent, and that's what they do. They scourge them this time. uh The scourge was a a leather whip that was cut into nine pieces, um, a single stroke of the scourge was actually three strokes, two across the back, one across the front, so it was one of one of these motions and uh, and that's why everything's divisible by three they would They would give up to thirty nine lashes um Because 40 was the amount accepted by the law. The law didn't allow them to give more than 40 uh, because then people would be in danger of dying. We don't know how many lashes they received, Um, but I'm guessing it wasn't just a slap on the wrist, right? I'm guessing these guys left bloody. And um, I hope, (laughs) I can't guarantee it, but I kind of hope the Sanhedrin saw the smile on their face when they left. You know what I'm saying? Like, that is so weird. They left rejoicing that they got to suffer for the name. Right? They, 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 God considered them worthy to suffer like Jesus suffered. At the same hands of the people who made Jesus suffer, in the same way they actually inflicted suffering on Jesus. And that filled their hearts with joy. They're like limping out, man. They're like having to help each other. And they're looking at each other like, praise God. We had the honor of suffering for the name of Jesus in the same way Jesus suffered. Can you imagine how infuriating that would have been for the Sanhedrin to watch them actually walking out smiling at each other? Like they're doing everything in their power to silence them. Intimidate them, to shame them, to crush them. And what do they do? I love this. They go back to the temple, right? I mean, they must have been a sight all bandaged up and a mess, but they're right back up there preaching about Jesus, boldly, joyfully proclaiming the gospel. And we know the result, chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. And in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, that they, it continued to spread. People continued to be attracted. These guys were up there, and people were like, holy cow. I better listen to what they have to say. They seem to have a power and authority I've never seen before, and their message is, is something I've never heard before, and their community is, is experiencing something I wish I could experience. So everything about it was disorienting and beautiful so people responded and believed. All right, the Sanhedrin isn't done. Our passage is going to pause there for today. We're not going to keep reading, but we're going to see in coming weeks where this goes, right? These guys, we know where it goes. These guys, when their authority, when their power isn't respected, what do they do? They up the ante, right? So their displays of power are going to actually become more violent as we will see in, in coming weeks. But I think there's some, some important things we can take away from this passage for us. Right. Obviously, we're not facing a Sanhedrin, right? We're not. We're not being called to go to Solomon's portico and 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 to preach the gospel every day and and have the religious elite coming down and and um, seeking to to uh, intimidate us and hurt us um, and threaten us. But here's the thing: we're called to be bold in our faith in the same way they were. The same commission that was given to them was given to us, and that is that we are to be witnesses of of the resurrection of Christ. We are to be disciples who make disciples, bold in going deep in our faith and bold in the sharing of our faith, inviting others to also um, believe in Jesus. And here's the thing there are some principles I think that are driving their courage that I think will help us today. So that's kind of where we're going to wrap up with a couple points about courage. The first is this true courage is rooted in humility. True courage is rooted in humility. This is a little bit counterintuitive because a lot of times we think true courage is rooted in self-confidence. If I could just be confident enough in my ability, if I can just be confident enough to to move forward and to be bold, then I would have courage. But what we see here is, in fact, that courage um, doesn't flow from self-confidence. Courage, true courage, doesn't flow from strength or intelligence or a track record of success. True courage flows from humility. See, when you're humble, you have nothing to prove and nothing to hide. Right? When you're humble, you've got nothing to prove and, and nothing to hide. Right? One of the most powerful weapons of misused authority is shame. And we all know the experience of shame and we hate it. See, the power of shame is pride. In the old days, they used to put people in stocks. It was called being pilloried, right? They would, they would actually have a board in a public space, and they would stick your head and your arms through it, and they would lock you in place, and you would stand there in an awkward position all day long, and then people walking by would, would verbally mock you. They would would yell insults at you. If they had rotten fruit, um, instead of throwing it into the garden for composting, they would bring it to the public square and throw it at your head. Um, Why? Because it's fun. Isn't it? It's it's fun to heap shame on others. It really is. It's fun to be part of, of the safe group. It's fun to be part of the righteous group. It's fun to be part of the right group. And when somebody is being shamed by everybody else it's like, yeah, I got a rotten tomato. It's got your name written on it, right? So so pilloring. It's a good thing that's not part of our society today, isn't it? Good thing we're we're so grown and mature and we got everything together and 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 we don't do that stuff today, right? Yeah. Um, we love shame as much today as we ever have. It's, it's part of our human nature. It is, it is the exercise of power to intimidate, to tear down, to hurt for the purpose of making us feel safe and good and right. Anybody on that little thing called Facebook? You ever see somebody get publicly shamed? Have you ever joined in? to their public shaming. You're like, well, it was somebody I didn't know. It was a political leader. They deserved it. Right? They're an idiot. They're the biggest idiot on the face of the earth. They deserve public shame. And you don't? See, it feels really good to heap shame on others because it really makes us feel good about us. Shame is the misuse of power to tear others down for the purpose of making us feel strong. See shame is powerful because people hate to feel like they don't belong. They hate to feel like they don't measure up. They they hate to feel like 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 they're an outcast. See when we feel shame, it confirms our deepest fears. I am unworthy. I am not lovable. We feel shame, and what's the natural reaction to shame every time? It's hiding. That's why pillaring is such a powerful tool of power because everything in that person wants to simply go hide, and yet they are forced to stand exposed. And that's exactly what we do on social media, and that's exactly what the leaders are trying to do with the apostles, and that's exactly what every human who has tried to misuse power to get people to come back into line with their authority has done. They've tried to expose the weaknesses of others to manipulate their behavior because their behavior became threatening or unpleasant to them. See, we hate shame because shame feels like death. You know why shame feels like death? Because we are prideful. We want to protect our name. We want to protect our record. We want, we want people to think about us, what we wish we could think about ourselves. And so it's really important for us to protect our public image and to protect how people perceive us. And when, when we feel shame, we feel vulnerable. There's a crack in our pride. And in that moment, we simply want to run away and hide because we can no longer posture and self-protect and hear what we want to hear. Listen to me, true courage diffuses the power of shame because it is rooted in humility. Humility only flourishes where there is a death of pride. See, humility says, I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to defend. My security doesn't come from my record, right? That's the beautiful invitation of the gospel. The beautiful invitation of the gospel is that my record isn't dependent on my performance. My worth isn't dependent on on my ability to impress you or even myself. My worth comes from the word of God, which says, I love you. You're my child. Think about Peter. Peter is an incredible example of this. Peter was a man that was broken of his pride when we look at Peter in the Gospels, Peter was a guy that was full of natural confidence. He was full of natural leadership ability. Uh, when, 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 when he was one of the disciples, he was always in that front group, that leadership group. In fact, he was in part of that central three uh, of Peter, James, and John that were kind of the inner circle of, of the disciples. And, and, and Peter was very aware of it. And Peter was very confident, right? And, and, and he was like, man, all the others, he told Jesus this, all the others will walk away from you. All the others betray you, but I never will. Not me. I'll die before I walk away. And we all know how that story ends, right? Jesus gets betrayed. He gets drugged in before the council, the Sanhedrin, the very people, the people that, that Peter is now standing in front of. And, and Peter follows at a distance and stands in the courtyard in the middle of the night just so he can see what's happening. And as he's standing there by the fire, shivering in the cold, a slave girl hears his accent and is like, hey, aren't you a Galilean? Aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? He's like, no, not me. A little while later, she's like, no, I'm sure of it, man. I hear it. I I think I even saw you. No, man, no, it wasn't me. And a little while later, she's like, I'm positive of it. I know your face. I saw you. You were a follower of Jesus. And with a curse, he says, I don't know the man. And Jesus had predicted that night that he would betray, that Peter would betray Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. And in that moment, the rooster crows. And in that moment, Peter's pride dies. Have you ever had that moment where you're like, man, I really disappointed myself. Man, I I really let myself down. I want you to hear those are words of pride. I'm not saying they're words you shouldn't say sometimes, (laughs) but I'm saying those are words of pride because what that means is you have an idealized image of yourself. And in that moment, you didn't live up to it. And what you really think is in that moment, that's the aberration. The reality is my idealized image. The reality is I'm brave. The reality is I'm strong. The reality is I'm successful. And in that moment, you get a glimpse of your genuine self, as Peter did in that moment, and it was crushing. Absolutely crushing. At the end of the Gospel of John, we get an incredibly intimate and powerful look into how Jesus restores Peter, right? Jesus appears to him. Peter's out fishing again. He doesn't know what else to do. He's out just fishing and, and Jesus appears. Peter gets all excited, um, runs to see him, and then sits awkwardly. Like, just sits awkwardly. They're by a fire. And, and Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And the word he uses there is agape, which means, do you unconditionally love me? And Peter's like, Lord, you know I love you. And the word he uses is phileo, which means I have a strong brotherly affection for you. Like, like he's a broken man. He can't even assert I love you unconditionally. All he can say is, Man, you know my heart beats with affection for you. And Jesus looks at him and says, Feed my sheep. Three times. In the same way Jesus did not, or Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus restores Peter three times. Three times. Peter, do you agape me? Peter, Lord, I phileo you. Peter, do you agape me? And in the end, Peter's like, Lord, you know all things. You know I phileo you. That's all I can say. And Jesus says, go feed my sheep. You know what he's saying? You're qualified to lead, not because of your love for me, but because of my love for you. It's okay if you can't even say you love me. Because what makes you qualified is my calling, not your ability a beautiful restoration. And we see Peter then moving in humility into leadership in the early church. Now when he's challenged and he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin and they're challenging him and they're calling him, you know, an, an ignorant idiot. He's not looking back at his track history of success thinking, okay, I'm okay here. He's not looking at how strong he is or how confident he is or how he has been faced with adversity in the past and he was strong enough and he came out on top. That's not what he's looking. You know what makes him confident in this moment? Not his record, but Christ's words. In this moment, what makes him strong is not him, but the fact that Jesus looked at him and said, I love you. Go feed my sheep. I got a job for you. So in that moment, he wasn't, he wasn't reciting to himself his own past history. He wasn't repeating positive mantras, right? Trying to psych himself up with self-talk, right? I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Um, you know what made him strong? It was, it was remembering that Jesus loved him. Remembering that Jesus accepted him, right? Jesus looked at him and said, I, I know you screwed up, and I know you will, still will. I know you're going to fail. You failed, and you will fail again. I don't reject you. I love you, so follow me and lead as I lead you. And because he was loved in spite of his failure, and because he was loved in spite of his weakness, he could now walk in the bold strength of humility. And their attempts to shame him to call him a grammatose idiotus, to to shame him that he had never been to school, to shame him that he didn't have the right education, to shame him that he hadn't worked his way up the social ladder, to shame him that he didn't have the right to speak in front of the Sanhedrin, that, that he didn't have the social standing. All of their shame fell on deaf ears. Seriously, what could they say to him that would reverse what Jesus had already said? See, true courage flows from humility. So courage flows from humility and it is driven by faith. So humility is, is what creates courage. Faith is what drives it. So somebody who is going deep in their faith and discovering humility will find an emerging courage within them. It simply is the manifestation of strength that comes from humility. But faith is the engine that powers it and makes it move. Courage is that steady state of humility. Faith is what calls it to action and gives it direction. See, the church was given a promise. Peter was given a promise. Jesus looked at them and said, I've got a job for you, right? Go out and be my witness. What was the promise? I will be with you until the end of the age. And at the end of the age, I'm coming back. And the kingdom of God will be established on earth. And everything that's broken will be healed. and Everything that is wrong will be set right. He had a promise. No matter what they do to you, you will never lose my love. You will never uh, lose my acceptance. Faith in the promises. The God's kingdom would be breaking in and soon established that this age was temporary. Faith in the promises. That's what drove them to get back up on Solomon's porch day after day after day. That's what drove them while they were still bleeding to get back up there and talk about Jesus, right? When shame didn't work and threats didn't work and, and, and the Sanhedrin resorted to the next level of intimidation, which was scourging and beating them, faith motivated them, wounded and bleeding to step right back up and do what, what should have been crazy to do. But it was because they had a promise. I will be with you. Go do this thing, I'll be with you, right? And, and no matter what they do to you, they can't take away what I've given you. I, I've already paid your greatest debt, and I've already given you your greatest blessing. What can they do to you? The best they can do in the big picture is become a speed bump on your way to glory. The best they can do is become a minor hindrance because I have a plan and that plan will be fulfilled. And as a result, they do what seems crazy, but it seemed completely rational and normal to them. I want you to catch that. They weren't looking at themselves saying, man, look how brave we are. They were simply looking at themselves saying, what else can we do? (laughs) Right? It's like the night that God led them out of the prison. Do you think they were debating? Do you think we should obey God? No, it was perfectly reasonable for them to step right back up there to the place of danger and keep preaching because they had faith in the promises. And as a result, that drove their courage. It didn't feel extraordinary to them, even though it seems extraordinary to us. They were simply doing what any sane and logical person would do, given the promises that God had given them. So true courage is rooted in humility. It's driven by faith, and it is made light by grace. Our passage ends with that crazy statement in verse 41 that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They left bleeding and they left smiling. They had joy. You guys, this is one of the most unexplainable and beautiful parts of true courage. It is made light by grace. Grace diffuses shame. When they wanted to condemn the apostles, when they called them stupid and uneducated and idiotas and misled, grace shielded them. They stood there protected in God's love even when they faced the rejection of man. Right? They could stand there and say, I don't deserve it, but my greatest debt has been paid and my greatest blessing has already been given. I am a child of God, I am co heirs with Christ. You want to call out some bad things about me? Go ahead. The reality is I know worse. You think you got bad things to say about me? You have no idea. I could tell you things that would make your toes curl, man. I'm bad. Right? But I'm not afraid. Because grace diffuses the power of shame. And grace undercuts the power of threats. What can you do to me? What can you take away from me? Can you really take away from me what God has given? Can you really threaten me in a way that threatens my real security in Christ? You can't take anything away from me that God won't allow you to take anyway. You can never take what God has given. See, grace reminds you on the darkest day that the light of the world has broken in. Grace reminds you when you're totally alone, that you are loved. Grace meets you when your friends betray you. His loyalty to you and with you reminds you that he will never leave you nor forsake you. See, it's the beauty of grace, you guys. You didn't earn it. It was freely given. You can't lose it. There is a security and a joy and a lightness that comes from moving in grace. Grace. True courage isn't a superhuman feat for God. It is a humble, joyful response to God. So let me ask you, where are you allowing shame to lock you in hiding? Where are you allowing the enemy, in whatever form he may take, whether it's somebody outside of you or a voice inside your own head, to lock you down because of your pride, hinder your growth, cover you with condemnation? Where are you allowing shame to drive you to hiding? Where are you allowing the enemy to beat you up and shut you down? Where's the accuser abusing you? The most powerful thing you can do is step out of your shame into the love and acceptance of Jesus. That is faith driving courage it takes courage to step out of shame. It takes courage to expose what you don't want to have exposed. It takes courage to, to move into community and to worship and, and, and into the, the fullness of the gospel. And yet that is the very thing the gospel calls us to. You need to reject your prideful need for self-protection your prideful need for posturing and pretending, of managing how people see you, of managing how people perceive you. You need to just let that go. It is empty of meaning and it is exhausting. Where are you allowing someone's threats or the fear of someone's threats to keep you from being faithful? See, fill your vision with the promises of the gospel and allow um, his character His promises to renew your strength? Where are you tempted to gripe and complain about your suffering? In that moment, let's remember the price Jesus paid to redeem and restore us, and let's consider the audacious promises that have been given to us because of the work of Christ. Our debt is paid, our blessing is giving. our security is absolute. See, no one can take away what he has given. It's only a matter of time before he returns and we see all things set right. When we have our vision set there, we'll understand true courage. You guys, I'm going to create some space for us to pray. Um, Allow God to speak to and and, and encourage your heart. Um, We're going to take communion uh, in a moment. We do that each week here at Trailhead. Um, Before we do that, I'm going to pray for us. I do want to remind you that we have worship response cards in our bulletin. If you're a guest with us, um, we would love to have you fill it out. Let us know you were here. If you have prayer requests, fill it out. We would love to pray with you and for you over the coming week. All you got to do is drop those in the response boxes up front or by the doors. Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. Father, I thank you that um, you're not asking us to be courageous and then sitting back and waiting for us to be strong, and judging us when we're not. You love us. You give grace to us. In fact, you feed us the very things we need to move and courage. I pray, Lord, that we would drink deeply at that well, that we would taste deeply at that banquet, that we would know deeply that we are loved and accepted, and that we are made right by your work for us, not by our performance for you. When we fail, Lord, I pray that That we would get good at combating the enemy who would come in and condemn us and cover us with condemnation. We would run quickly to grace, knowing that we didn't earn it and we can't lose it. And even when we fail, even when we disappoint ourselves, even when we don't live up to our idealized image of ourselves, even when we hurt others in our sinfulness, we are called not to hide, not to run, not to pretend not to nurse our pride until we can once again think highly of ourselves, but to embrace the fact that we don't have to. That we don't need to worry about our self-esteem when we realize how deeply you love us, how richly you've blessed us, how greatly you've enriched us because you love us man, let that boldness flow in us. That we might be a people bold in grace and humble in demeanor with nothing to prove and nothing to hide. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.